KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. When Christopher Nolan set out to adapt American Prometheus, a sprawling biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, he got an early warning not to make it too wonky. Hollywood has struggled often with the portrayal of different forms of genius. It's a difficult thing to get the audience into this mindset. And so I think early on, one of my sons I was talking to about the film said, you're not really going to try to explain quantum physics in this film, are you, Dad? Because that won't work. And I said, no, point well taken. Today, we're joined by Nolan and Kai Bird, who won a Pulitzer for his work on American Prometheus, a project that took him and his co-author 25 years to complete. Nolan explains why, when negotiating with Universal, he felt confident, insisting that the film had to be a three-hour-long, R-rated depiction of people talking in rooms, as he puts it. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my colleague and banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So the tit-for-tat between Disney and the dissident shareholders, Nelson Peltz, backed by Ike Perlmutter, and with Jay Rusulo, the former Disney executive, joining that team, you know, they're fighting for a couple of seats on the Disney board. This is a heated war, at least <laughs> at least in their minds. I don't know how the shareholders feel. We'll see how they vote. Uh, they sent a letter, they being the Nelson Peltz Raiders who want these board seats. They sent a letter a few days ago just complaining that Disney hasn't done anything to improve where it was, that they still don't have a plan for succession of Bob Iger, which, as you know, is a long-standing problem, that they lost $1.7 billion on streaming in the past year, that basically these guys need to come in and fix everything. And then Disney, of course, promptly countered with its own uh, sort of uh, visual pictures of all the happy things about the Magic Kingdom, saying, don't let these guys have boards seats. Yeah, it was a very Disney presentation they sent around. It was basically saying, check out all of our creative wins for the past year. They're even using Professor Ludwig von Drake, a Disney character, to walk shareholders through their voting card to vote the white proxy card for only Disney's 12 nominees. And they're basically going through the hits of the past year. Avatar, The Way of Water, third biggest movie of all time, number one most visited theme park in the world. You know, 163 total Emmy Award nominations. I mean, this back and forth is all in response, I think, to the Disney earnings call in which Bob Iger had a very good quarter and laid out a bunch of things that got the shareholders excited. The stock went up and Nelson Peltz felt that he had to counter and then Disney counter countered. <laughs> so here we are. And the shareholders now have their ballots and are placing their bets on who they believe most. And we will know in April who the winner is. I think you and I both think the winner will be Bob Iger, but we could be wrong, right? <laughs> could happen. We could be. I, <laughs> I doubt it. I think that when given the choice between the guy who has taken Disney to the heights that it saw until 2021 versus two Palm Beach billionaires who opened a Spite store and started throwing bombs at Disney – I think they're going to probably pick Iger. I'm right there with you. Meanwhile, in another part of Disney, John Landgraf, the head of FX for many years and you know commonly considered to be the smartest man in television, he has been talking about peak TV for a long time and then predicting its demise. 
Peak TV, hey, is now said is over. We went from 600 shows the year before to now 516. It's a rough yardstick, but obviously people are dialing back, and that bubble did have to burst, and it has burst. Yeah, only eight years later than John Landgraf, the smartest man in television, first said it would burst. <laughs> in 2016, he predicted that that would be the peak of television. Uh, obviously, it went up every year, except for the pandemic's first year. And finally, it's down. Now, the strike is a big reason for that. A lot of shows either paused or didn't get off the ground because of the strike. But this retraction was happening before the strike. And I think it's going to continue into this year, despite the fact that now the strikes are over, because we've just seen the bubble pop. I mean, he even said it in his presentation that this all traces back to Netflix realizing in 2022 that it had to focus on profitability rather than just growing subscriber numbers, which necessarily translates into pulling back on the volume of content. And then everybody followed. Well, everybody was getting killed except for Netflix. And that goes circles back to one of the complaints of the would-be raiders at Disney. And that has not sorted itself out. You know, I mean, we talk about this in one shape or form all the time. But Hollywood is being transformed in front of our eyes. Fox is gone, basically. Paramount teetering. You know, we it's a question of survivor right now. And we don't know yet. And which ones will survive and in what shape or form. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Belny, founding partner of Puck News. In 1980, author Martin Sherwin launched a project of epic proportions, writing the definitive biography of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. But after 20 years of research, Sherwin still hadn't gotten far in terms of writing the book. So in 1999, he called on his friend Kai Berg to help him get the project to the finish line. Five years later, American Prometheus was published, and the co-authors won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography. Unfortunately, Sherwin died in 2021 and did not live to see Christopher Nolan's adaptation of the book turn into a global phenomenon. Seemingly against all odds, Oppenheimer, a three-hour film dealing with very weighty subject matter, not to mention science, has grossed nearly a billion dollars at the box office. It has also been mopping up awards and has 13 Oscar nominations, including for Best Adapted Screenplay. Nolan and Bird joined us to talk about the long journey of completing American Prometheus and bringing it to the big screen. So Kai, I just want to spend a couple of minutes on how you come into this. You had a book partner, sort of, who had started on this before, right? Absolutely. Marty Sherwin. Marty Sherwin. And he had signed a deal to do a book on Oppenheimer, as I gather, in 1980. <laughs> <laughs> And by the time I think you got involved, he had 50,000 pages of interviews, transcripts, letters, diaries, declassified documents, FBI dossiers, yeah. all of this in boxes in his home. Right. And, uh, you know, he was a terrific history professor and historian of the Cold War. His first book was about the decision to use the atomic bomb. And in 1980, he signed a contract with Knopf. Oddly enough, you know, I don't know if Chris knows this, but Marty was first approached to do a biography of Louis Straws. Ah. <laughs> I did hear that. That's amazing. <laughs> the person played by Robert Downey Jr. in the film, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he so disliked Straws and the surviving son who wanted to control the editorial process that he backed off of, of it and ended up working on Oppenheimer. And 
you know, he just did fabulous research, but, you know, he was teaching and the years rolled by. And 20 years later, he came to me and we, by that time in 2000, were good friends and colleagues. And I'd written two biographies of people who had known Oppenheimer. So I'd actually written a little bit about J. Robert Oppenheimer. And Marty said, you know, let's, why don't you, I know you're in between books looking for work. Why don't you join me on my project? And I was a little hesitant, actually, because, you know, co-authorship can be filled with perils. Yes. But Marty was a very charming, funny, witty guy. And finally, at one point over a vodka martini one night, he said, well, if you don't join me, my gravestone is going to read, he took it with him. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think at one point people were referencing an Oppenheimer curse because it seemed to be not getting finished. I don't know. Maybe one of you can tell me what that is. Chris, do you know what the Oppenheimer curse is? I do not. I've not not heard of the Oppenheimer (laughs) curse, but um, certainly not feeling it with the film, thank you. (laughs) Right. No, not at all. Right. No, it just was inside gossip in the academic community. Everyone knew that Marty was working on this project. And so no one who was interested in tackling it themselves, you know, would take it on because they knew this great articulate historian was doing it. And everyone, But then, you know, after 20 years, some doubts arose. So the Oppenheimer <laughs> curse was a reference to, well, maybe this subject is, you know, Oppie himself is so elusive and enigmatic and mysterious. Was he a member of the Communist Party or not? What about his love affairs? What about this poison apple incident? It was a very complicated personal story, on top of which it's about quantum physics and the making of the atomic bomb and all these controversial issues. So anyway, Marty persuaded me, and I joined him in 2000, and it turned into just a, a lovely collaboration. We really liked working on the book and we had no major disagreements. We just debated the evidence and I started to write and that stimulated Marty to start writing. And uh, But it still, of course, took five years for us to write the book and get it published. Well, it's, I will say, without being in any way disparaging, it is thick as a brick, right? It's not, it's not a pamphlet. It's a very, very hefty book. And I have actually started reading it because I'm interested. And uh, I was, I was heartened to see that Oppenheimer, I figured my brain and his probably had almost no overlap, but you know, he was a fan of George Eliot's Middlemarch, which I am a fan of also. So, you know, there's a little bit of, a little bit of crossover there. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's what made him a great scientist, really. We argue that he could understand what were the right he could imagine the right questions to ask in, about quantum, precisely because he was a humanist and he loved T.S. Eliot's poetry and the Gita, so much so that he learned Sanskrit to read it in the original. You know, he was a polymath. I'll say, yeah. Now, Chris, somebody told me that you read physics books for fun, and I can't imagine. Is that true? <laughs> Uh, it it is true, but not when you say physics books, not textbooks. There there are some wonderful physicists out there who've taken a lot of care and attention with trying to make concepts, particularly concepts of quantum physics. Um, you know, make that accessible to people, make that interesting for people. And I really first encountered that working with Kip Thorne on Interstellar. Um, so I did a lot of reading around those concepts because Kip's original hope for the film was that it would be would be based on real science and the idea that real science is sometimes stranger than fiction. 
which is certainly what I found. Um, so there are some great authors out there like Carla Ravelli who find a way to just draw you into a sort of layperson's understanding of some of these really complicated concepts. And uh, no, it's definitely something I've continued to be more and more intrigued by and, and have incorporated into my work. In Tenet, you reference the idea that, uh, mm-hmm. which I was didn't know, I've learned a lot just in the course of getting myself ready to talk to you and also even just watching the movie in the first place. I didn't know mm. that there was a concern, I, sh- I feel like I should know, that if they managed to create this atom bomb, that the entire atmosphere could basically incinerate. <laughs> I think you referenced that yeah. in Tenet, right? I did. I mean, it was the it was the thing that at some point I got a hold of this information about this moment prior to the Trinity test where the leading scientists, you know, led by Oppenheimer, they realized they couldn't completely eliminate this very small possibility that atmospheric ignition would occur and the world and life on Earth would be destroyed. But they went ahead anyway and, and conducted the test. And and I felt like that's just the most dramatic moment I've ever heard of, really. Um, we included a reference to it in Tenet to try and you know give context for the science fiction conceit at the heart of that film. You're familiar with the Manhattan Project? As they approached the first atomic test, Oppenheimer became concerned that the detonation might produce a chain reaction. Nothing would. They went ahead anyway and got lucky. Think of our scientist as her generation's open But then when I finished Tenet, as a rap gift, Rob Pattinson, who's in Tenet, uh, gave me a book of Oppenheimer's speeches from the 1950s, in which Oppenheimer is, you know, you see him wrestling with this change that he and his colleagues have wrought on the world and, and how that needs to be addressed and how it needs to be handled. And it's pretty frightening reading, actually. Um, And you realize what an incredible change this was, what an incredible moment. And so sometime after that, my co-producer on the Dark Knight films, they were produced by Emma, myself, and Chuck Roven. And Chuck suggested I read American Prometheus. And when I read it, and Kai, you know, I mean, as I've told you before, it's it's an incredible book and deceptively simple in its structure, but but really um, laid out in a beautiful way. And I think as soon as I hit the moment in the book where you realize that Los Alamos, this place that's going to live in infamy, um, that that was just a place that he and his brother liked to go camping. And that, you know, he had this ambition as a young man to bring together his exploration in the wilderness of New Mexico and camping and riding horses out there with physics. These were his two great passions. He wanted to bring them together. And of course, with the Manhattan Project and the lab and town they built at Los Alamos, uh, he made that happen. And as soon as I could sort of start to sense that personal connection between the man himself and, and his deepest, most intimate personality and this massive geopolitical change that has altered the world in a way that we all still live in and always will live in. The impression I have from the book, Kai, is that Los Alamos wasn't just like a place that Oppenheimer liked. I mean, he seemed to love it passionately. I almost was surprised that he would want to bring a project that could destroy the world to this place that was so special to him. Am I am I overreading something? <laughs> well, it's true. He had bought a ranch, a hundred and 30 acres up at 9,000 feet, but it was located about 40 miles down the road in the Los Pinos Mountains. So it was nearby, and he picked Los Alamos because, you know, it was in the middle of nowhere. All that existed at the time was the Los Alamos Boys School, where people like Gore Vidal went as a young man, for instance, (laughs) usually wealthy East Coast boys who 
needed to be toughened up. And as Chris says, this was his passion, New Mexico and quantum physics. And he once told his younger brother, Frank, that he would be a happy man if he could find a way to combine them. So <laughs> he certainly uh, did, he did. Yeah. I think also to your point, Kim, he believed that when they were finished, it would all get packed up and Los Alamos would be returned to its original state. And so we included that in the scene with Truman where, you know, Truman says, what should we do with it? And he says, mm -hmm. give it back to the Indians, which is a sentiment he expressed in exactly that way. Um, it slightly speaks to his, the naive side of him, but also to his ego. And this was, you know, he was a brilliant man, but of tremendous ego, um, that he thought that when the Trinity tests had been conducted, when the bombs had been produced to end World War II, that they would all go away from Los Alamos and that would go back to being, you know, this this beautiful place that he could visit. Uh, you know, he really saw it in those terms and was almost caught by surprise that, of course, the lab simply got bigger and bigger. And to this day, it's one of the key places where nuclear weapons are made and managed. Coming up after the break, Kai Bird shares why he calls himself the luckiest biographer on the planet. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. Our guests today are Oppenheimer writer and director Christopher Nolan and Kai Bird, co-author of the massive Oppenheimer biography, American Prometheus, which Nolan adapted into his award-winning film. When Bird and his late co-writer, Martin Sherwin, released the book in 2005, several filmmakers signed on to adapt it. After years of unsuccessful attempts, Bird and Sherwin were surprised to hear in 2021 that Nolan was taking a crack at it. I'm going to try and bring this all together, Kai. I think uh, like 40 years after the book was started and maybe 16 years or something after you finished it, somebody sends you a clip in Variety talking about Christopher Nolan's next project. And that's the first you hear of this, right? That's correct. <laughs> so, you know, it was a surprise. And I was curious to know whether Mr. Nolan was working on a screenplay based on American Prometheus or maybe some other book. So I had my agent make a few <laughs> inquiries and then Chuck Roven called me and said, yes, yes, we want to assure you it's based on your book. And Chris would like to talk to you. And I think we talked in the next day or two. And, and then we had a meeting in New York. And uh, I was greatly reassured. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what were you most concerned about? Well, it's, you know, it's a difficult mountain to climb, uh, any adaptation, but particularly this adaptation. And the years had rolled by, the book had been optioned off and on, and, you know, nothing had happened. And then suddenly I see this notice in Variety, and I, I wondered if it was based on our book, but 
you know, in the end, it was a happy story. In that oh, I think Hollywood so, yes. And, <laughs> and Hollywood was indeed able to, and I think only because of Chris's adaptation, the screenplay is just, you know, marvelous. It captures all of Oppenheimer's personality, the intensity, his love lives, all the high points and low points of his life and the building of the bomb. And I was very pleased that the screenplay focused heavily on what happened to Oppenheimer after 1945, because that's really the arc, the drama of the story, the tragedy that happens to this celebrated scientist who is put on the cover of Time and Life in 1945. And then nine years later, he's destroyed in this kangaroo court and turned into a public pariah that's that's a story that's you know and i know at one point when marty and i were writing he turned to me and he said you know this is like in 2003 he says you know kai you and i wouldn't be spending all these years on this project if it was just a story about the building of this gadget what really makes it compelling is the human drama of what happens to this very enigmatic well-meaning scientist who is destroyed in this political witch hunt. So, Chris, you have this book. How do you mm-hmm. attack it? I mean, I don't know if it's an answerable question. Maybe it can't be answered, but you don't do it in some linear mm-hmm. way at all. You're shifting from thing to thing. And I'm trying to figure out whether you, you know, had things on cards and then changed them one way or the <laughs> other, or there was a plan in your head from the jump. I mean, it was, I mean, every project's unique and different um, and requires a different approach. With this, the book, which is over 700 pages, it's, as you say, it's a brick, no offense, Kai, it's a big book (laughs) with 25 years of incredible research and writing in it. It's also very intricately structured in its own way that you really only start to realize when you have to adapt it. The approach that I took was to read it again, and then put it to one side and think about it for a long time and start to make notes based on my memory of reading the book, based on Mm. the things that, for example, you would tell someone at a dinner party about the book if you wanted them to read it, Um, some of the more extraordinary things. Because I wanted to get all those first impressions down, the things that I needed to to be there in the finished script. So that was my starting point. And then I spent months trying to figure out an appropriate structure, trying to figure out how to approach telling somebody's life or a very large part of somebody's life in, well, I would say two hours. It's actually three hours. Um, and I think I knew pretty early on that it was going to have to be a three-hour film. And actually, when when we went to Universal with it, it was 180 pages and, and clearly going to be a three-hour film. So those were sort of the parameters I was working to. And for me, I write in a linear manner. So I write from page one through to page 180. I try to write the film as the audience is going to see it. But to do that, I have to have had my my structure worked out very carefully in advance. And when I looked deeply into the book, I found several references to Strauss and his antagonistic relationship with Oppenheimer. And then in particular, there was a, a really interesting reference towards the end of the book about a similar situation that Strauss had found himself in um, several years after the security hearings, where he he really got to suffer something of Oppenheimer's fate in terms of a sort mm-hmm. of uh, a form of public disgrace. And um, that parallelism, that started to interest me and started to define the structure. And so 
I decided I wasn't going to read outside of America Prometheus because there's so much information in there. You don't want to get lost reading other interpretations of Oppenheimer's life. But I did then go to primary sources. So I went to the transcripts of the hearings, both the security hearing and the Senate confirmation hearings that Strauss was subject to. And what I found in there was truly stranger than fiction and really, really kind of incredible. So started to work some of that material into what I was getting from the book. Um, so, Kim, you should understand this means that Chris did his own historical archival research by going to track down that transcript from yeah, the confirmation that's how I understood hearing. understood it. Yeah. I was very impressed by that. And, <laughs> you know, Marty and I tell the story of what happened to Straws in the confirmation hearing, but we failed to go and look up the transcript. <laughs> <laughs> as Chris did. So. <laughs> and Chris was the better historian. <laughs> I guess so. I think you did a pretty great job, Guy. I don't think you missed much. Yeah, just in, in that uh, one instance, yes. <laughs> Not generally. Well, and the key thing in the book as well is they refer to the confirmation hearing and they refer to the fact that it was John F. Kennedy who voted against him. Yes. And that, to me, was just golden. I thought that's just a wonderful end to Strauss's tale. So I started, yes. it was on that basis, on the basis of what I found in the book that I started started digging and found some incredible things like David Hill's testimony against Strauss. Um, you know, this was a very brave scientist who stood up in front of his country and took on, you know, a powerful man and spoke truth to power, as they say. I found that wonderfully symbolic of what I found in American Prometheus, which is that when the scientific community, a lot of whom disagreed with Oppenheimer, a lot of whom disliked Oppenheimer, frankly, but when they saw what the government had done to him, right. they rallied around in a very inspiring way. And with very few exceptions, they really were united in their support for the independence of a scientist to be able to express his opinion uh, to the establishment. I gathered that when you, you were writing the script, the direction was in the first person. Is that a device that you used? Yeah. It, it is, and I, I don't know if anyone's done it before. I'd never seen it, never thought of doing it, but I was struggling, as I worked through the first act, I was struggling a little bit with, I kept sort of finding myself wanting to put voiceover in and things like that, even though I knew intellectually that that was the wrong device for my approach, because I was looking for subjectivity. I really wanted the color sequences. Those are the scenes from Oppenheimer's point of view, and I wanted them to read subjectively in the script the way I was then intending to shoot them subjectively. And so about a third of the way into the script, I went back and I rewrote and tried putting all of the stage directions into the first person. So rather than saying, you know, Oppenheimer comes to the desk, sits down, takes off his hat, you know, it was, I come in, sit down, take off my hat. And I immediately, I like the effect immediately that it had on the reader, on me and, and the reader. I showed it to my brother um, who, you know, I show everything I'm working on too. And, and he pointed out to me, that what worked about it is we found a way, finally, I found a way to have people read the stage directions and make the stage directions feel as important as the dialogue. And for my films, with the structures I take on, the stage directions are really important. They have a lot of clues as to where you are in the story. But when you're showing scripts to people who, like so many of us in the industry, read so many scripts, we tend to read the dialogue more than the stage directions. Right. So it was sort of a way of putting people in Oppenheimer's head and giving everybody involved with the film a constant reminder of whose point of view those color sequences were, were telling. So for Hoyter van Hoytema, my DP, for really everybody involved, we'd know that, you know, we want the camera a little bit closer to Killian Murphy playing Oppenheimer. We want to see things over his shoulder. We want to physically be closer to him than we are to the other characters in those scenes, things like that, to just maintain this 
distinction of subjective experience of Oppenheimer's versus objective, which are the black and white scenes, which are more from Strauss's point of view. And the screenplay was this, that was the document I had to use to work this out and to get this across to everybody involved. I read somewhere that uh, your wife and producer, Emma Thomas, was concerned about this being a three-hour film and whether it could be a summer hit. And I, I was a little surprised why summer hit, actually. It feels, you know, sometimes the more hefty, earnest movies, I'm not using earnest in any dismissive way, mm-hmm. but you know what I mean, sure. are more around the holidays. So how did it turn into being a summer film? I think... I was harking back to an earlier era in studio filmmaking. Um, I was sort of looking back at things like uh, Oliver Stone's JFK, Mm. which I've no idea what time of year that came out, but it had a sense of event. It was a big movie, not in a budgetary sense necessarily, but it felt big and important and like an event that an audience wanted to go and see. And that's what I wanted for Oppenheimer. I felt that this is one of the great American stories hasn't been told in this way, you know, specifically from his point of view. And I really wanted that to play in a large way. We've had a lot of success over the years releasing films in the summer. It's a sort of rhythm to the marketing and distribution of a film that we're familiar with. Christmas is a very different way of doing that. Uh, It felt right for the approach I was going to take. And it also felt like it started to communicate to the studio was very supportive of that. Um, it started to communicate what the ambition for the film was and what the tone of the film was, in a sense. We really wanted to reach people all around the world. We were looking to involve them in a very compelling story and try and make it as thrilling and exciting as possible, even though a lot of it is about you know, people talking in rooms. There's also so much imaginative use of images capturing the ideas going through Oppenheimer's mind, I suppose. If that sounds remotely right, you can tell me. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no, definitely. And and I think the use of IMAX was something that Emma and I talked about very early on. And so when we took it to the studio, we took it to them knowing a lot of things about it. You know, we wanted to involve them in the process of, you know, when they would put it out in the world. But we did make it clear that we were going to make a three-hour film. It was going to be R-rated. And so within those parameters, we were going to make it as exciting as possible. And we were going to use the language of the heist film for the middle of the film. And we were going to use the language of the courtroom drama for the last third. And my reasoning there and what I'd put into the script is when I look at the genre of the heist film, the genre of the courtroom drama, those are the two genres where the words people say become really important and interesting and tense. They create tension for an audience. In those genres, the audience is really on for the ride of a verbal presentation of ideas. And that's what we needed to make this work. So I I really, with the screenplay, I pushed as hard as I could in, in that direction. And the first meeting I had with Kai, I didn't tell him much about what I'd actually done. Uh, I just wanted to meet him and put a face to things and, and sound him out on a couple of issues. But I was relieved because, Kai, you almost immediately said to me that you'd always believed that any film would need to embrace the security hearings in 1954 as some kind of framing device or as the yeah, main thing. Absolutely. And I didn't tell you, it, well, I think maybe I told you at the time I was using them, but uh, that gave me a lot of confidence in the approach that I'd taken. Yeah. Uh, so, Kai, I'm going to say that you got a little lucky here with Chris being the one who wanted to make this film because I don't think there are too many people 
and I don't want to flatter him too much, but I don't think there are too many people <laughs> on the planet who could actually do what was done in Oppenheimer. I'm guessing you agree. Oh, oh absolutely. Did you ever imagine that this would then become Barbenheimer? <laughs> because that is something that doesn't happen ever. <laughs> Well, I'm always being accused of being unnecessarily optimistic, but I, I am indeed the luckiest biographer on the planet that Nolan <laughs> read this book and fell in love with it and managed to do a, a really compelling story. And, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you in Bangalore, India, and I've just come from a literary festival where I was mobbed by young Indian students, you know, teenagers and college students who have all read the book. Wow. I was in one event where 500 people were sitting there in this big tent listening to me talk about Oppenheimer, and we began by asking how many people had seen the film. Nearly everyone raised their hands. Uh -huh. You know, this is a global story that has somehow resonated with completely foreign audiences in India and China and around the world. And I think because it's such an important story about the beginning of the atomic age. I'm sort of tempted, Chris, this, did you feel some kind of a kinship with Oppenheimer in that, you know, his brilliance, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it? That's very flattering, but but no, I mean, the, the truth is when you tell the story of somebody who's a genius and can think in a way that very few people on the planet can think. And, I, and I've met some of those people. So I've met Kip Thorne, for example, Nobel Prize winning physicist. You know, we collaborated on Interstellar. And one of the first meetings I had with him, I was talking to my brother about afterwards because Jonah had worked for a couple of years with Kip before I came onto the project. And Jonah said to me, so did your head start to feel hot after about 45 minutes? And I said, yeah, that's really weird. It actually did. It literally, mm. your brain starts to overheat trying to understand <laughs> these things. And Kip's a very generous thinker and communicator. So he's able to make you feel that you can speak his language and feel that you can understand enough to get you to the next step. But the truth is, he's of a world, and Oppenheimer was of a world that's so far beyond what the rest of us sort of lay people can do in terms of, of thinking of these concepts. Um, where I find a point of connection that really helped me was when he's put in charge of the lab. He's becomes the director of the lab at Los Alamos. And that I could relate to because at that point, he wasn't actually the leading scientist in a way. He was bringing all these brilliant people together and trying to get them to do their best and coordinate them. And that's very much what I as a director want to do. You know, you want to turn up on set with, you know, Hoyter Van Hoytema shooting the film and, you know, Robert Downey Jr. and Killian Murphy and Ken Branagh, all these great actors doing their thing. You're trying to sort of get them to do their best and, and focus that on one particular task or one particular form of expression. And so that was a point of connection that I could relate to. Yes. Um, but it's daunting taking on a character. And I think Hollywood has struggled often with the portrayal of different forms of genius. It's a difficult thing to get the audience into this mindset. And so I think early on, one of my sons I was talking to about the film said, you're not really going to try to explain quantum physics in this film, are you, Dad? Because that won't work. And I said, no, point well taken. What I tried to do is approach it like a magical insight, almost like a superpower or something that Oppenheimer would have in the, in the first act that would frighten him. So he's getting these insights, but he doesn't quite understand them. He can't quite reach 
the truth. He can't quite figure out how to use the insights he's got. And Niels Bohr, played by Ken Branagh, sort of turns up in this almost Obi-Wan Kenobi way and, <laughs> and sort of suggests to him how he can harness this power. How's your mathematics? Not good enough for the physicist he wants to be. Algebra's like sheet music. The important thing isn't can you read music, it's can you hear it. Can you hear the music, Robert? Yes, I can. And that I felt, you know, and obviously I'm making Star Wars references here, so it's like clearly, to me, that's something the audience can grab a hold of, even though they can't understand the specifics, just like I can't understand the specifics. God knows, I can. I was a little encouraged that he was bad at lab work and math because I thought, okay, <laughs> exactly. <that's something." laughs> so, Chris, I just want to say I was really appreciative of the fact that you never used composite figures in the film. Mm. You know, each actor is portraying someone who is real, like Kenneth Branagh playing Niels Bohr. So you're able to convey all this important history that's authentic and true. It's just, uh, it's a gift. Well, thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kai, you said just a little bit ago that you're an optimistic person. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, <laughs> we see a world now where there's war, where there's been anxiety about Putin using nuclear weapons of some kind in Ukraine. We all saw the dramatization of Chernobyl and, you know, Iran, and did they have a weapon or are getting there? So are you still an optimist? And um, that's a question for both of you. So we'll let Kai go first. Well, I'm an optimist, maybe naively so in the same way that Oppenheimer was in that, you know, I do believe that we've become far too complacent after 75 plus years of living with the atomic bomb. And, you know, the story is not over. It will never be over. And tomorrow, these weapons could be used for the first time since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that would be a human disaster. But Oppenheimer was optimistic that human beings, while they can't stop the progress of science, they are capable of learning how to live with science. And we could learn to regulate these weapons and ban them essentially and try to create an international control regime. So, you know, he was very prophetic, warning that any country anywhere in 1945, he was saying, you know, any country anywhere, however poor, will be able to build these weapons. So don't think that we're going to have a monopoly very long. And we certainly didn't. Yeah. So he's predicting the world in which we live. Mm. Yes. North Korea and India and Pakistan and maybe Iran tomorrow. So it's very dangerous. And so that's a very important theme of the book and the film. And I think it's a teaching moment. Uh, Chris, I think you may have made some people in Hollywood at least a little more optimistic about the movie business but with the, <laughs> the ability to do what you've done with this film. How's your optimism level? My optimism level is great when it comes to the movie business. When it comes to nuclear weapons, as Kai says, it's something that uh, a threat that will never leave us and needs to be continuously managed forever. But the thing that I should point out, you know, as I've spoken to people all around the world about the film and, you know, raised this as an issue for people to talk about, um, the film ends on what I consider to be a dramatically necessary moment of despair. And that's correct for the dramatization of the film. But the reality is that the control of nuclear weapons, the idea of non-proliferation, which Oppenheimer advocated, was one of the early advocates, since 1967, we've reduced the number of nuclear warheads in the world by about 90%. So 
there's much that can be done in policy terms to make the world safer. Of late, that's gone the wrong way. And this is what Kai's referring to in terms of the complacency. Um, the number of weapons is starting to go up again. But if you look at the history of non-proliferation, the governments and individuals and organizations that have fought for this and continue to fight for it, they're able to make the world a safer place. And so despair is not actually the appropriate response. The appropriate response is pressure on governments, pressure on leaders to take this threat with the appropriate seriousness and to try and reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the world. Yes, 90% not there, but still plenty, unfortunately. Christopher Nolan is the Academy Award-nominated writer and director of Oppenheimer, and Kai Bird is the Pulitzer Prize-winning co-author of American Prometheus. Thank you both so much for doing this fascinating conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you for having us. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from Sue Margulies, Phil Richards, and Nick Lamponi, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.